Well, as was uh, mentioned in various times in the service, uh, Jodie and Mandy have had uh, the COVID this week, so here, here I am uh, subbing in for them. So good morning, everybody. I'm Graham, of course, and uh, good morning to anybody, everybody and everybody watching online. And we're not going to go on with uh, the sermons on uh, Matthew. Jodie will come back to those um, next week. But I thought we might follow up, because last, last week we did... Um, Matthew chapter 20, uh, along with other things uh, that brought up issues about marriage and divorce. So I thought I had, might, we might follow up with what we're doing today. Uh, but first, from last week, you might have been here and you might remember, I hope you do, <coughs> you'll hear that uh, Jody there said about um, marriage that it is unbreakable except by death in God's original design in the Garden of Eden. But divorce came along later, exists, and it's permitted, uh, the Bible uh, says, because of the hardness of heart, which certainly includes um, human sinfulness. It might just be relationships become unstuck and people decide to break things up and make another start or something. But divorce exists and is permitted. But originally, marriage was hopefully unbreakable. So, as I said, with Jody unable to continue with his preaching today, I thought we might follow that up by looking at the time uh, the Sadducees confronted Jesus uh, about marriages in heaven. Um, not not in the modern sort of lingo, marriage made in heaven, but uh, they wanted to raise, raise the question, are there marriages in heaven? So, uh, when Christians get to heaven, two people are married to each other, are they still married or not uh, up there? So uh, what we'll do is I'll, I'll say a prayer and then I'll, I'll read our Bible passage. It's a half, uh, about a dozen or so verses and we'll have a look at how this incident unfolds. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we continue to focus in on uh, the biblical teaching about marriage. Uh, give us understanding and wisdom, we pray. Uh, the faith to accept what you are saying and the strength to put it into practice in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the passage is uh, Luke chapter 20, uh, verse 27 to 40. Uh, my sermon is called The Sadducees and the Resurrections. And, uh, the Resurrection, singular. And here we go with the reading. Jesus was approached uh, by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. Uh, they pose this question, Teacher Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife but no children... His brother should marry the widow and bear a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The eldest one uh, married and died without children. The second brother married the widow. He also died. The third brother was married her. This continued with the seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those, be, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Uh, they'll never die again. In this respect, they'll be like angels. They're children of God and children of the resurrection. 
But as for whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not the dead, for they are all alive to him. Well said, teacher, remarked some of the teachers of religious law who were standing there. And then no one dared to ask him any more questions. So here we come across a group of people called uh, the Sadducees. And uh, here's a, uh, a picture uh, of what they might look like from, a, from an ancient book. Probably goes back a few hundred years, a depiction of, of the Sadducees with a, the old-style uh, Gothic script and all that. In those days, the Jewish religion was not just one exact set of beliefs that everyone thought exactly the same, but there were a number of groups uh, within the Jewish faith and they had different ideas on what was the truth of religion. We know from other parts of the New Testament there was a group called the Pharisees. You can probably recall from sermons and Bible reading and so forth. They were the ones who were very particular about keeping God's law. Today we come across another group called the Sadducees. So the Pharisees believed in life after death, but the Sadducees did not. They believed that when you're dead, that was it, and there was no more life on the other side. So therefore, without uh, belief in an afterlife, the Sadducees were focused on earth and earthly rewards. I've got no doubt that when Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God was very near, it must have got them very annoyed. So what did they do? Well, uh, as we saw in uh, our Bible reading, they came up to Jesus with a question. This is not a sort of a, an open and honest sort of question, but they've set up a ridiculous situation designed to make uh, any idea of life after death appear ridiculous. Now, before going on, we'll just uh, pause ourselves and think about uh, just the way our society was structured in those days in, within the land of Israel, within strict Jewish society. And uh, for them, it was very important uh, for a father to have a son, as we'll see from the way the passage was considered necessary, uh, because society was based on ownership of your inherited land, and a father would pass it on to his eldest son and so forth. And so to die without an heir would put the family farm in danger of being lost. And back in the Old Testament, in the early chapters... Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you're interested, it says that if a man died without any children, his brother had to come along and take the widow for his wife. This was running through their questions they were asking, wasn't it? And the children that they had together were considered as if they were the children of the dead father. So in the ridiculous scenario put forward by the Sadducees to make a mockery of the idea of life after death, there was this woman, they say to Jesus who had seven brothers for her seven successive husbands. The trouble was each brother kept on dying, and what was worse from a Jewish point of view, uh, they were dying before the woman had conceived any children, so she had seven hus husbands and no children. It's a poor thing, sort of thing. The problem came when she herself died. Having married each of the seven brothers one after another, the triumphant question uh, is unveiled, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? 
in heaven, uh, how can she have seven husbands all at once? So, ha ha, big joke. Therefore, no one can possibly take the resurrection seriously. And of course, I'm using the word resurrection. I'm talking about life after death in heaven uh, in this. Now, both Matthew and Mark in their Gospels uh, record this incident and they add in some extra words of Jesus. Uh, and I think I've got this on a slide. Jesus says to them, is, this, is not this why you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? So uh, the sayings of, of Jesus um, sets us up for two nice headings to our sermon. Uh, the answer falls into two parts. The Sadducees are wrong about the resurrection, firstly because they do not know the power of God, and secondly because they do not understand the scriptures. So uh, the first heading uh, for today is they do not know the power of God. And we'll see that uh, the basic point that Jesus is making is that marriage is not even an an issue in heaven. Life in heaven is life with God. So uh, I'm bringing some New Testament verses here because we don't want to just leave our thoughts in the Old Testament as New Testament people of God. We want to bring in the whole picture of of what God is saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, and verse 12 says, Paul says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. And here Paul says, now in this world. So in our life as Christians, uh, we peer forward into the future, we see just a poor reflection. We don't see the full picture. Uh, But then, uh, he means in heaven, then we shall see face to face. He's talking about face to face with God. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. So there's some things about the future uh, that we know partially now, but we don't know the full picture. God and his ways are often veiled to us now in this life. So Christians, as, as we journey through this life, sometimes we're puzzled, sometimes we're troubled because we don't see the full picture of the way God does of how our life's going to unfold. Sometimes we're puzzled about whether we should take this choice in life or that choice in life and so on. But anyway, we press on in faith sometimes and leave, leave God to guide us. But when we're taken up into heaven, we'll see God face to face as he really is, in the splendour of his goodness. And then again, another New Testament verse, 1 John chapter 3 uh, and verse 2. Uh, it says, Dear friends, that now we are children of God, and what, we ha- and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him, it's referring to Jesus, we shall see him as he is. So the thrust there is we're God's children now, but much better is coming. And of course, when we read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we come across many pictures of heaven as it really is. In heaven... God's creatures are constantly praising him. The emotions are always exuberant. Everyone who is there in heaven stands in circles, bigger and bigger circles, as they all fit around the centre of heaven and without worrying about the the geometry of how this works, uh, scripture declares that everyone's looking into the centre of heaven and seeing their God the Father, the Creator, and Jesus the Saviour who died for our sins. Everyone's focused on that centre point of heaven. Everyone's praise and gaze is set at that point. So uh, life in heaven, uh, according to my next slide, is resurrection life. It's life with God. The fellowship 
between God and the believer. It's direct, uh, not mediated through the word or some such as it is now. It's unhindered and it's complete in every respect. So now let's, uh, having looked at what the, uh, the, new, the new way the New Testament is running, let's just switch our thoughts to life on earth for the Christian. During our life on earth, Christians need companionship. We need the help and support that Christian fellowship provides. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, God is always partially veiled from us and we need to get God's help. Sometimes it'll come to us through others, other believers. Uh, so in Genesis chapter 2, uh, God said, and this is a, uh, the next slide, it's not good. Uh, having created Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. And yes, the main meaning of this verse is, as we see as we read on, that God goes on to create Eve, that getting married is the deepest form of companionship that there is. And God gives us each other for mutual companionship and help. And uh, God gives Adam a helper in the form of a marriage partner, Eve. And this means that for those members of our church, if you are not married, for the singles amongst us, that you especially need close friends and Christian fellowship as one of God's ways of helping you to heaven. And for the marriage, it means we've got to take care of those amongst us who are singles, recognise that they don't have the same close friendship and com intimate companionship that us marriage have, make sure they're included and not, not left to sort of languish on the way uh, through sort of being neglected or something, no one to share a problem with, that sort of thing. We can probably bring to mind, uh, I hope, that both Adam and Eve in the Old Testament narrative were formed from the dust, that God went to the dust and from it he created the first man, Adam. And Eve comes from the same place because she's made from a rib in Adam's side. So we see there that they have earthly bodies, because they're made from the earth, earthly bodies suitable to life on earth. But as it turns out, we had a reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, I hadn't, didn't look up what the readings were when I was doing the sermon, but anyway, it was good that we had that. It teaches about the resurrection, so it ties into what I'm saying. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul there is talking about two kinds of bodies. He talks about natural bodies. These are the bodies that come from the ground. Uh, your body and my body. Our bodies are natural and they are suitable for living on this earth. They breathe the oxygen, uh, they eat the food, they grow old, they die and so forth. But then he contrasts that with spiritual bodies. Now spiritual bodies aren't like spooks or ghosts or nor are they angels. Uh, we're going to hear as we go along, Jesus will say that they're like the angels in this respect but it's not sort of sitting on the clouds with, with a harp. Uh, they're spiritual bodies because they're life which is suitable to the life of heaven in the way that the natural body would not be suitable to the life of heaven. The spiritual body being animated by the Holy Spirit is suitable for the life of heaven. And those two bodies are contrasted there. Perishable bodies, says Paul, will become imperishable and mortal will be wrapped up in immortality. And to summarise it all, Paul says, we will be changed. So there's a big discontinuity, a big change happens at the point of death. 
between the old and the new. There is therefore a big difference between life on earth and life in heaven, between life before death and life after death. In life on earth, the institution of marriage is appropriate and it fulfills certain needs. But life in heaven means the resurrection life. It means life with God. Now, we're going a little, little digression here and some thoughts from Graham. I've been an official church minister long enough to have seen uh, big emphasis come and go on the biblical slogan of the church is the family of God. And here people were perhaps as we would do as Australians, thinking of the nuclear family, which is mum, dad and 2.5 kids. But what's often translated as the family of God in our New Testament translations, and of course every, every English Bible we have is a translation of the, the Hebrew and the Greek as originally written, it's better translated as God's household. And we should be thinking of the church. Uh, it's a bigger concept than the family of God the church is the household of God. And in the Greek-Roman world that Christianity spread, the Greek-Roman household was dad and mum. It could be some or all of the following, aged grandparents, children, slaves, servants and other relatives like aunts and uncles. So a much bigger concept than Australia's nuclear families. And that's really our church. It's the household of God. And by the way, in those days, households were instructed as one, both in the Jewish society, which was very dis distinctive to Greco-Roman world, and out in the New Testament church as it spread around the Gentile world, the households joined together in worship and households, not just families, but the whole households uh, were instructed as one and shared as one. Over here at Jamboree, we aspire to be an intergenerational church and to make sure we're thinking in biblical families it helps to think of ourselves as a household of God. This aspiration is closer to the biblical concept uh, of the household of God than any modern concepts of the nuclear family. Uh, we've got the uh, church census coming up and it matches up with the Australian census every five years and the Australian census of every five years shows about one quarter of all households in Australia consist of a single person. And uh, yeah, we who live in the world of families said, oh, really, one in four is just a single person. The single folk, as mentioned earlier, lack the intimate companionship of a marriage partner. So we need to be very careful they're included in every way in our intergenerational church. So as we get start to move back towards the passage, just think of how Jesus' words are running in our passage today. I think you'll soon realise that he's teaching us that marriage is an institution designed for earthly life, but in heaven we are not married. In fact, I've got a startling conclusion to run past you. In heaven, we'll all be singles. That seem right? We'll all be singles. It's a little bit startling for me to announce this last night where there's a brand new married couple there in the front row, but there we are. In, in heaven, we'll all be singles. No doubt we'll be able to recognise our spouses if we have one. I don't have a Bible verse on this. It's more of a gut feeling. And recall our lives together 
that we helped and supported each other when the times are tough, we dragged each other through, and so forth and so forth. And the same will be true for the other members of the church because we're their household of God. But in heavenly life, there will be constant fellowship directly with God. No more need for human companionship to avoid loneliness. True, there is fellowship in heaven, but primarily it is the fellowship of praising God together, not so much the fellowship of two people walking and talking together. So we won't need marriage as an antidote to loneliness. And of course, there'll be no more need for reproduction because death will exist no more. Our sexual desires will be a thing of the past. But right now, of course, they're part of this worldly order. In this earthly life, we want to bring, build strong, happy and productive marriages. In this life, we also want to help single folk also to reach their full potential as Christians. It's our goal, whether married or single, to grow towards Christian maturity. I might bring in Paul's thoughts in Ephesians where he talks about the church not as a bunch of individuals, each person doing their own thing, but Paul talks about one new man growing up into Christ with the concept of the unity of the, of the church, the household of God. We're growing up together, not as individuals. So when the heavenly comes, I think this is my next slide, I hope people are keeping up with me. When the heavenly comes, the earthly things will fade away. We will be, as Jesus says, like the angels. And as I hinted at before, it's not sitting on the clouds with harps in our hands and wings on our backs, that sort of stuff. But Jesus is talking, as Paul did in his own way, about heaven no longer being categories of married or single people as we now have on earth. And this could be hard for us to come to terms with, to think that the person with whom we've spent the most significant part of our lives will in heaven no longer be our special companion. But think what it must be like to see God face to face. Words cannot describe the thrill, the exaltation, the high-flying praise. We see this all the way through the book of Revelation. To gaze upon him who gave everything for us to secure eternal happiness for us. The joys of marriage will fade away in comparison. And so the Sadducees didn't understand what the resurrection life is going to be like, hence their ridiculous question. They didn't understand the power of God. And the second thing that Jesus said about them was, uh, slide, uh, they do not understand the scriptures. They read, and they read their Bibles, for sure they were keen about that, but they did not understand. I wonder why that was. Well, over in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 5, we get a hint of this when Jesus is talking to a group of opponents and there he says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. But this is the, the trap, this is, uh, this is what they're not catching on to. These are the scriptures that testify about me and yet you don't come to me to have life. And so people who are, are opponents of Jesus having rejected Jesus, might come to the Bible and read it as the Pharisees and the Sadducees did in their day, but having rejected Jesus and Jesus being the centre of Scripture and the, thing that, the theme that holds all of Scripture together, 
They fail to get the understanding. They fail to understand what it means. So their attitude is wrong as they read these scriptures. If we say no to Christ, it means we cut ourselves off from the help we need to see and believe. Because Christ himself is a true interpreter of scripture. And Jesus knew that the Old Testament does indeed teach the resurrection of the dead. Now it's true, there isn't a whole chapter or chapters all about the resurrection of the dead uh, in the Old Testament, the way we sometimes find in the New Testament. But it's there from time to time. So uh, in Psalm 16, uh, in verse 6, uh, the psalm writer says, Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And verses 9 and 10 he says, My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So instead of a decaying body in the grave, the grave will be opened and there will be a resurrected body. Psalm 73 verse 24, You guide me with your counsel, so it's kind of guiding me through life, and afterwards you'll take me into glory. And then we can think about the time the prophet Elijah was taken directly up into God's presence without even dying. So there's clear markers of life after death scattered throughout the Old Testament. It's true, there's nothing in the Old Testament comparable to a saying such as what Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, where he says, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So I also agree there's nothing so clear as this in the Old Testament, but overall, the Old Testament, when read correctly which means reading through the, the lens of Christ, does push us towards belief in the resurrection to eternal life. So Jesus says to the uh, Sadducees in our passage that really as far back as Moses, in the earliest parts of the Old Testament, there is a clue about the resurrection. At the burning bush, if you can recall that uh, famous incident where the bush burnt but wasn't burned up, and God announced his presence and his name, I'm Yahweh, I am, that's who I am. And, God, and Moses called upon the God who is. Uh, we read that, Joseph, uh, that Jesus says in verse 37 that, G, that God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's who he's called at the, in that incident. And he can only be Abraham's God if Abraham is alive, if Abraham's dead, dud, uh, dead, dusted and gone and rotting in the grave um, and there's no, no life on the other side, then God's no longer his God. He's only Abraham's God if Abraham is alive with him. Likewise, for Isaac and Jacob, the great patriarchs, he's the God of the living. All believers are always alive with God. And actually, as we read through the Old Testament narratives about the patriarchs of Israel... Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, you wonder why God goes out, goes out of his way so much to protect them and they're going the wrong way so he pushes them back on the right way and you've got to get to the promised land so we'll do it this way and we'll do it that way. We'll keep pushing them along and with all their mistakes and fumbles they finally sort of get there in the end. What's the point of God going out of his way so much to make these promises come true for them if you can't protect them at the time of greatest need which is at the point of death? What's the use of Abraham being God's friend? If when Abraham dies, that's it. If it's over, there's no more friendship with God. What's the use of Old Testament faith? 
if there's no resurrection? Why did God go to all that trouble to protect them in life if he didn't intend to protect them in death? So we read Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you'll be with me. And you probably know that psalm. We can give it its true Christological meaning this morning. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll be with me, Lord Jesus. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. And you think about Psalm 23, you might be able to recall that the person walks through the valley of the shadow of death and he comes out at God's banqueting table where God is the host. And this is a picture of heaven, no doubt. So God walks us through death to heaven on the other side. This is Old Testament teaching. Uh, and it's brought to its fulfilment in Christ, who's the resurrection of life. He's the good shepherd who walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. So the logic of Old Testament faith is the resurrection of God's people. He is, the present tense, Jesus notes this, and it's important, these little words in the Bible. He is not was or used to be or might be. He is, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, because Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are clearly alive to God in heaven. So then we can come down from this sort of mountaintop stuff and say, is this all true? Will the immortal God continue to be faithful to us? When we die. Well, remembering that Christ is the true interpreter of Scripture, we see him at work in this dialogue with uh, the Sadducees. And he, of course, is the key to understanding the Bible. Because God was not just faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God was faithful to Jesus. So today we can say that God raised Jesus from the dead. We do not worship a dead hero. Christians worship a living saviour. And these same Sadducees who are bailing Jesus up, we're just about, as we get up to Luke chapter 20, we're, we're, we're already in Jerusalem. We're only a week away from the end. They're in Jerusalem at the time of the death and resurrection of Christ. Did any of them come to faith in Christ? We don't know. You would think that some of them might have. But we do know that the crowd was astonished. And it is astonishing, this teaching in the Bible, that the perfectly holy God, having raised the innocent Lord Jesus, now raises dead sinners from the grave and brings them to the life of heaven to be with him for eternity. So you can see, again, we see what an, an enormous privilege it is to be a Christian, to be granted by God to believe in a resurrected Saviour, to know that this Jesus will never desert us, not even in death. So the resurrection age is now here. It's arrived never to depart. Jesus has risen from the tomb. Christian believers who have died are now sharing with him the life of heaven. The astonishment of all this should continually motivate us to respond to God with 101% worth of commitment, uh, thanksgiving and obedience. So as we come towards the end of our service, we're going to sing our final song. <laughs>